One thing I've always been curious about is the buying and selling of stocks. I don't know about you, but I don't really understand how all of it works. It goes a little bit over my head. If you're like me and you're looking for a place to begin, try Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, EDFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. Get started and you will see how simple and intuitive using Robinhood actually is. Easy to understand charts and market data means you can place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You'll also never be without analyst ratings that let you know whether to buy, hold, or sell for every stock. Robinhood presents all data with a clear design in an easy-to-digest way. And that's because they strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just for the business savvy and wealthy. And with that, there's no cost to use Robinhood. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood does not charge any commission fees either. So you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. The best part with Robinhood, you learn by doing. Learn how to invest as you build your portfolio. Discover new stocks and trade your favorite companies with a personalized news feed. Receive custom notifications for price movements so you never ever miss the right moment to invest. Whatever I invest in, I do it smart and I do it with my whole heart. Try Robinhood today and you'll find a non-intimidating way to invest in something with true confidence. Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up right now at yogagirl.robinhood.com. That's yogagirl.robinhood.com. Hi, and welcome to another episode of From the Heart Conversations with Yoga Girl. Today, I have a mega fun guest on the show. He is a comedian, author, speaker, emotional healing coach, and YouTuber with over 300 million accumulated views, the one and only JP Sears. Welcome to the show. Yay, Rachel. Thank you for having me. And I love that intro, your enthusiasm. I feel like I need to... I'll actually listen to that recording every morning for the rest of my life. That's an <laughs> awesome way to intro my day to, for myself. That's awesome. But yeah, and I'm super honored to be here with you, Rachel. I am so excited to have you. Yeah, you can have that as like the alarm clock. I feel like that's something that maybe Tony Robbins would do. He would sell an <laughs> app with his voice motivating someone to get out of bed and feel awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I'd, I'd pay a premium for the one with your voice, Rachel. I thought it was awesome. <laughs> I, I want to start off, the name of the show is From the Heart. So speaking completely from the heart in this moment, unfiltered, how are you doing right here, right now? I love that question. Uh, yeah, the weather's good, Rachel. Uh, you know, things are awesome. You know, uh, yeah, the real answer, I, I would say right now I feel pretty solid and peaceful and and that's amidst the the sea that's been a little bit turbulent lately. I've been having, oh, the past couple of weeks, and I was really working with it yesterday, a lot of feelings of loneliness, insignificance, and helplessness coming up inside of me. And and they feel old. You know, I'm, I'm getting images of childhood uh, accompanying them uh, sometimes, so it's uh yeah it feels old yet nonetheless the the geyser that is our emotional body that just kind of says okay this has been underground for a couple decades and now it's time to come to the surface so i i've definitely been feeling uh some of the the challenging shadow uh feelings of insignificance helplessness and loneliness do you think uh... I have to say I have been feeling exactly the same. 
very, very deeply, specifically hopelessness has been this kind of recurring, yeah, this kind of recurring theme for me. And uh, I haven't been able to pinpoint it. Do you think that there's something collective going on? Do you believe in the idea that collective emotion or collective energy that we all share the same things? Sure, I do. You know, I don't think we're ever drinking from the well alone. And I, and I know some wells, there's maybe a few of us drinking from it at the same time. In other wells, maybe we all have our cup and uh, uh, dipping down the well. So, yeah, you know, I don't know. There was a full moon recently, and I won't pretend to be completely in tune with all the significance of that yet. Uh, talking with you and then a few other friends, there does seem to be a little bit of collectivity happening. And, you know, when that happens outside of the, just the dysfunctional fact that misery loves company, I think there's actual genuine support and companionship, uh, w you know, with the struggle when we know, first off, I'm not the only one. And people that I love and respect and admire Uh, are going through their version of the same thing. So uh, that almost infuses uh, an inherent sense of hope, hopefulness amongst the hopelessness. And uh, yeah, it, it feels good to know others are drowning too. <laughs> Hopefully not That's drowning. That's a morbid, morbidly beautiful way of putting it. I, I fully agree. But how does that work for you? Because, I mean, for someone who's listening right now who might not be super well-versed in your work, I was sharing it, like, I have a studio here in Aruba where I live, and I was sharing it with the team, and everyone who works here just love your YouTube videos, your comedy. They think you are just super hilarious. And then I have other friends who aren't into this, you know, yoga world, so, or into this idea of, I guess, being spiritual, who didn't know where you were. So explaining it to someone who doesn't know you, what do you do? What is your day job, if there is such a thing? Oh, man, I'm having more and more trouble explaining that, to be honest with you, Rachel. <laughs> you know, in a nutshell, how I distill it down present day is uh, I do a connection and creativity through comedy. So expanding that slightly, I, I do comedy videos and live comedy shows as a way of bringing deeper messages for awakening to people through the language of comedy while also just having a good time uh, uh, with it as well. And with that, I help people awaken through not only the comedy, but other, uh, other angles of very sincere work. So yeah, maybe I, I think maybe I'm going to rephrase how I answer that from now on, Rachel. And, and I'll say I help people awaken through connection and comedy. Hmm, I love that. It's not really a college degree or <laughs> curriculum. It's just, there's, it, it's like a, it's like an abstract splatter of what I do. It doesn't fit into what like YouTube live comedy shows a private membership community used to have a whole coaching practice and speaking at conferences. So the beautiful thing is it's like I do so much, but it all leads uh, up the same mountain. Because this was a couple of the questions that I got through social media was, is JP actually a spiritual guy? 
Because if you look at it only from the YouTube side, maybe, you know, you're very humorous and funny. But then if you go deeper and you go to your website and you learn about the background of how you came to be here and what you actually do, you actually do truly spiritual work as well. So one of the questions I got was, is JP actually a spiritual guy? So what do you what do you answer to that? What an offensive question. Not only am I a spiritual guy, I'm <laughs> the most spiritual guy. <laughs> of all <Yeah>. time. <laughs> of all time, for sure, and into the future. Yeah, my spiritual life has been very important to me since about the age of 20. So I'm 37 now, so that's 17 years by my delusional math. So it's been incredibly important to me. And I think part of my comedy has been helping me enhance my spiritual life. So first off, you know, that comedian that's always been a part of me since I was a kid, that's actually one of the ways that I dealt with pain as a child. I'd make people laugh so I can feel significant to them in the moment to escape my inner sense of insignificance. So I don't have to feel that for the two minutes someone's laughing and I've got to make someone else laugh. So nonetheless, I, merging the comedy with my spirituality has been really important to me because my spirituality uh, was starting to drown me. Uh, I was taking it too seriously. And, and dare I say, I was getting very egotistical with my spirituality. You know, from, the, from early 20s to my early 30s, I lived in North County, San Diego, out in California, uh, specifically around the area of Bensonita. So very spiritual area. And as I was into my spiritual pursuits, which I would say were significantly beneficial to me, while that was happening simultaneously, I was also getting very egotistical with my spirituality, like, you know, bro, I'm, I meditate longer than you, and oh, you're, uh, yeah, you, you aren't very conscious, are you? And look at me, I can hold intimidating eye contact longer than you, with silent pauses. <laughs> so I was doing all of that, but, you know, does the fish know it's swimming in water? Like, this redheaded fish didn't for a while. So I couldn't see my own ego's agendas within my spirituality. So a handful of years ago, I started to notice it. I started to see my ridiculousness around the sacred. And my way of dealing with that was to laugh at it. So I started to shine the light of awareness on my ego that had infiltrated my spiritual life, uh, doing that through videos. So it's, my videos were all about, hey, look at what I do within myself. And I portrayed on a video, it's always shining the light on my ego's shadows so that I could help rectify it, become more aware of it, and hopefully grow beyond it. So the, the comedy actually is not something different than spirituality. I think the comedy enhances spirituality, uh, if that's what we choose to do use it with. I mean, comedy can be a very destructive force. It can be anti-spiritual. It can disconnect us from ourselves, or we can use the power of comedy to enhance our spirituality, enhance our connection with ourselves, and actually heal with comedy. So that's what I do my best to do with uh, merging comedy and spirituality together. I, I think you do such a good job at it. I mean, some of the 
titles for anyone who's listening who hasn't followed you on YouTube or Facebook yet. One of my favorite videos that you do, How to Get Offended. <laughs> and it's sort of the theme that I'm living right now with some social media drama and things that are coming my way. Sometimes I just feel like no matter what I do, I am offending people all the time. Like I share something that's to me is very yeah. sacred or positive or healing. And there's just no way to please everyone. You have this way of spinning it in a way that's just non-offensive. And it also makes me recognize that when I get offended. So wait, wait, I do that too. <laughs> so here I am annoyed at the people that feel offended by the things that I do. But then I walk around feeling offended by other people all the time as well. So it's just funny, but it becomes this reality check for me at the same time. But do you think that your audience, are they part of this community? Are they similar to you in that sense? Maybe having been a little bit of that, I call it spiritual narcissism, which I find is just really common when we first kind of dive in and yeah. we want this lifestyle and everything that attaches to it so that we can also look super spiritual. And then with time, all of that, of course, it fades away. But do you think that that's the community that you're talking to? Or is it people who actually think that this kind of stuff is a little bit stupid? Or, you know, the offended people? Yeah, it's, it's both. Uh, it's both. And, and I think originally when I started my comedy you know, four years ago, it was pretty exclusive to the spiritual community. And that was a, a great start. You know, it's a community I've been involved with. I still am and will continue to be. Yet there, there's a challenge with being exclusive to one community. You become exclusionary. So I kind of think inclusion is important, right? at least for me. So uh, well, maybe two years ago, I made a real conscious decision to branch out from just doing comedy only on spiritual topics and realizing I have interest in other topics. Some of them are social topics. Some of them are more health and nutrition topics. Some of them are just goofy, weird topics. So if I have interest in something, I, I started giving myself permission to do comedy on that. So that, that helped my audience grow to be more inclusive, like, yes, still speaking to the spiritual community, but also realizing there's amazing people who don't identify as being a part of the spiritual community. And I want to reach them, too, because I can relate to them. I have common ground. And yes, I consider myself a spiritual person, yet I'm not only a spiritual person. I like to have fun. I like to roll in the mud. I like to tell dirty jokes to friends. I like to swear more than I should. So, yeah. In in fact, when I when I do my live comedy shows, Rachel, I get to meet several hundred people at a time face to face. So I can see, you know, after shows doing meet and greets. I get to get a real feel for people. And I would say the majority of people would consider themselves conscious seekers. And then maybe another 30% would, would be maybe non-conscious seekers. And, and maybe they're actually unconscious seekers. They are seeking. They just don't know that they're seeking or what they're thinking and seeking. And if that's true, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but yeah. So that, anyway, that's my experience of the, the weirdos who are drawn to my work. 
And actually, Rachel, I'd love to ask you, like, by the way, welcome to your podcast. I'm grateful to have you on. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Everybody, if you don't know Rachel, she's awesome. Yoga girl. Uh, I'm curious, same question, your audience, does your audience seem to be pretty exclusive kind of yoga slash spiritual community or are you finding outsiders are finding you as well i i think it's really a mix and i can sort of sense the cycles to it so since having a baby i've had this big growth of moms coming into the community because i've been sharing just so much more of that of motherhood and parenthood and it's not at all only yoga related anymore, but it's more about family or coping with challenging times, just more of the day-to-day life. But I can see that reflection depending on what I chose to put out there. But I just had a really interesting conversation with James Aspie. I don't know if you know who he is. He's this well-known vegan activist. Yeah. He's coming here in a couple of days and we're doing a talk at the studio and he's going to do this big lecture on veganism. And I was just so excited. Okay, I'm, I'm going to teach a class and he'll do a talk and we'll have food after and la la la. And then he was kind of like, oh, but sure, like we can do that. But I don't really like to do talks at yoga studios that much. And I was like, why? Like, everybody here just loves you. Mm. And he said, well, I'm preaching to the choir fairly, obviously. What's the point of me going to a yoga studio talking to a bunch of vegans about veganism? (laughs) We'll have a fun evening, but, you know, that's not really my work. My work is to go beyond and reach the people that haven't heard this message yet so that I can continue to bring about change. And I think that's part of all of our work, right? So whatever we're putting out into the world, we have to just get out of our comfort zone and speak to new people. Because it is easy to preach to the choir and just share the same things to people that you know already resonate with everything you do. And I guess, you know, it's scary to expand beyond that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think preaching to the choir, you hit the nail on that. That's so comfortable. Like, yeah, everybody, let's come join us. We're going to sit around agreeing with each other. You know, we probably won't grow. We'll probably reaffirm some important stuff, but we probably won't grow, nor will we grow the the ethos uh, into the rest of the community uh, that's outside of the confines of these walls. And I, something I'm finding, Rachel, is the more I'm able to be transparent and authentic with as I'm growing and changing as a person, letting that be portrayed through my work. Uh, that that seems uh, that's challenging because it's like what's been working is proven to work, and it's a little scary to l- let the let the expression change as my interest, as my priorities, as my calling inside as that changes. Yet I think the wisdom of that, of like taking the risk and going into the fear of like, oh, you know, I'm called to do a video on this or uh, uh, talk on this topic. And that's like, oh, that's a few degrees removed of what I'm normally doing. I'm I'm not maybe just going to be preaching to the choir. Yet I dare say the wisdom of that is we stay very congruent in our inner life and our outer professional life. And I think a nice secondary gain from that, if you will, is maybe the audience grows and we get to reach new people who have ears and a need to hear it. 
but also our our work itself it evolves and becomes just to use judgmental terms bigger and better yes yes it's very very true i um i saw your video on gun control yeah. <laughs> how did that resonate not just with your community but maybe with people beyond the scope of that that must have been an interesting experience well yeah it's, it's funny you bring that up that's a very clear reflection of what I was just rambling about. So uh, gun control, like that's not a very spiritual topic at all. Yet I was called to like, I've got something to say on gun control uh, and I need to be true to that voice. And, and it, honestly, first thing I'll say is that was very scary because guns are a religion to some people, a very fundamentalist, emotionally charged religion at that. So I was scared, like, wow, how much flack am I going to get? Are people going to be angry at me? And and of course, some people are angry no matter what you say, yet will more than some people be angry in in any way, the, I think the, first off, the gun video was well received within myself. I felt a sense of creative satisfaction. I felt a sense of purpose with it. And in other words, it felt like a very genuine call that I answered and, and took action on. So that's very fulfilling inside of me. And then outside, it seemed to be well received by uh, people you know, outside of the normal spiritual community, reaching new audiences. And of course, some people uh, thought it was just like offensive that I would make a gun control video and even question the, the, the way that guns are not controlled present day. So yeah, I would say I was nervous in what I was you know, kind of principle of life, how, you know, the shadow side of at least my imagination, I tend to fear what I, what I tend to be afraid of and imagine, uh, it's typically way worse than the reality is going to be. So my fear of what that video was going to do was way worse than what the reality was. I didn't have any NRA people knocking on my door. Mm. There wasn't any. That was, that was going to be my next question. No death threats, nothing like that. No, not on that. I've had another video. I've had death threats, but uh, none. Really? No Wait, which which one? Which one has been your worst or your most challenging reception? Yeah. So this was such a learning experience. So I know you've spent some time in Costa Rica about uh, well, a little over a year ago. I did a video on Costa Rica, and it was meant to portray the ignorant Americans you know, first world entitlement perspective in Costa Rica, which is a, a beautiful place. And it doesn't have all the first world conveniences that I think a lot of Americans have grown to know and, and expect. So anyway, I did a video essentially parodying that American mindset in Costa Rica. And that expat life. Yeah, yeah. And that video did not go down well in Costa Rica. I so haven't seen it. Actually, did you, is it still up there? It, no, it's the only video I've ever deleted. And, and I think ah, it was okay. very appropriate to delete. You know, there, I, I was getting actually a lot of death threats. I was getting harassed on the streets of Costa Rica and the, the Costa Rican 
a parliament or national council, I'm, I'm not totally sure what they call their government, but they were discussing the video at their national level. It was all over the news because they saw it as a big threat to tourism. And so and it, it came it, off to them as if it was poking fun at Costa Rican culture instead yeah, of the American culture. Interesting. Very much so. And, and part of me feels honestly a little bit ashamed that I didn't have the foresight to predict how how the Costa Rican locals would perceive the video. And in hindsight, like, yeah, I get it. Uh, man, I I get it. Here's here's a first world white American dude coming down and doing this parody video. So if I put myself in a local Costa Rican shoes, I can definitely see how it would be so easily and in, be interpreted as disrespectful. Now, I also got a lot of Costa Ricans saying, JP, put the video back up, man. That was just awesome. <laughs> but there, it was, it was such a large extent of negative feedback that it, it was a message for me. It's, I never want to respond to haters and let my actions be dictated by trolls, but this was not trolls. It was a lot of people genuinely hurt. So it was very clear to me after a day, the right thing to do is delete the video and issue an apology, uh, which I did. And honestly, that was such a valuable learning experience. It was not enjoyable whatsoever, but very valuable. It was very humbling. And, and I would say it really helped open my eyes to I, I, broader awareness and in seeing things from other people's point of views to a greater degree. Um, and uh, if I can also say, Rachel, also the challenge of that was not letting that lesson constipate my creativity not getting gun shy, mm, if you will. Yes, yes, yes. You are listening to From the Heart, Conversations with Yoga Girl. The best part about being in Sweden is all the fika time I get. Fika is our Swedish snack time where we eat something sweet. And with my vegan cinnamon buns, I have a cup of coffee, preferably from Four Sigmatic Mushroom Coffee. Four Sigmatic puts mushrooms in their coffee to create a surprisingly delicious super drink that has some really great health benefits. With powerful antioxidants and immune-boosting properties, Four Sigmatic's blend keeps you on track for all those busy days to come. It's less acidic and jitter-free compared to normal coffees. Plus, it will boost your brain activity, decrease stress, and improve your memory, concentration, and alertness. And of course, it tastes great as well. Don't worry if you're avoiding caffeine, they have caffeine-free flavors as well, which are also delicious and offer similar benefits to their main mushroom coffee. You will only find the highest quality of mushrooms and other superfoods in Four Sigmatic blends. They make sure the recipes are free from pesticides, mycotoxins, and other harmful chemicals. It's so easy to make as well. Just rip open the bag and mix with hot water, with nut milk, or even with your favorite smoothie. Four Sigmatic offers everything from mushroom coffees, elixirs, hot cacaos, and matchas. To kickstart my morning and power me through my workdays here in Sweden, I brew the dark roast coffee with shaga and lion's mane. It supports productivity, focus, and creativity. Drink it whenever your brain needs an energizing hug. Right now, when you head to foursigmatic.com slash yogagirl, you'll get 15% off of your entire order. That's 15% off of any order placed on Four Sigmatic's website, but you have to use my special URL, foursigmatic.com slash yogagirl. That's spelled F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash yogagirl. It's so interesting. I, I just had a conversation with Cheryl Strayed. 
And uh, one of the quotes that I picked up from one of her books, it was just super resonating with me all day yesterday. And I was reading it again this morning. It goes, believe in the integrity and value of the jagged path. We don't always do the right thing on our mm. way to rightness. And I think there is just this beautiful line between having to fuck up. <laughs> you know, we can't do this work and only make the exact right choice yeah. that's going to always be the right thing. So if we don't fuck up, sometimes we won't learn and then stay on that yeah. path toward the, the right thing. So I think the value comes in allowing ourselves to be humble and apologizing when we make mistakes and then do better next time. But I think it's so challenging because if you put your whole life on the internet, there's just so much judgment out there. It can be yeah. really hard to sort of step into this place of humbly apologizing for making a mistake. So how do you find that works for you? Because sometimes I make mistakes, of course, all the time, and I share my whole life on the internet, and <laughs> someone calls me out on something, sometimes my gut reaction is, oh, hell no. <laughs> like, that's not true. I just don't want to deal with that. This random person online is telling me something, but no, no, no. I'll just close this social media app and go about my day. But then it kind of sits there in the back of my head and I found it to be a practice to actually sit with it when a challenging comment or an email or something comes in. Like, okay, can I sit with that? If it makes me really uncomfortable, it's probably a sign that I yeah. should sit with it longer, read it, address it within myself. And then, okay, maybe there is something I have to uncover here because if that wasn't yeah. true, it wouldn't make me uncomfortable. And do, you, do you have that experience too? Or is all of this just an easy thing for you? Yeah, you're, you're preaching to the choir on that. I would, I have the same point of view and, and just echoing some additional words on that. Um, yeah, when, when I see a negative comment that creates emotional charge in me, and oftentimes it's like, oh, now I feel tension in my gut. Like, you, I, I feel hot. My arms will start to tingle. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll realize like, all right, what's this say about me? You know, I, I don't think I'm, you know, I, I think the real work isn't like what this person said, but what truth I hold, you know, truth with lowercase t, like what belief, what judgment do I have about me that this comment was a mirror for? Because if I didn't hold that as, you know, this negative comment, this critical thing, if I didn't hold that same belief inside of me, I doubt I would feel the emotional charge. I just read it and say, oh, you know, feel pretty neutral about it. But it's kind of like when you have two tuning forks in the same room, you ding one. And if the other tuning fork is the same note, it will start to resonate. So I think that happens inside of us. And I think when, you know, it, what some, what all of us can relate to, whether it's online negative feedback or negative feedback in your personal life from a boss, a coworker, a spouse, family, parents. When we look at that negative feedback, that person, in my delusional opinion, is a primary teacher. The, per the messenger delivering that message becomes a primary teacher, giving us the opportunity to either increase our self-awareness or decrease our self-awareness. And I think we actually decrease our self-awareness when we make it all about them. How I feel is about them. They made me feel this way because of their comment. And we essentially start blaming them for how we feel. Now, granted, it, the comment may have been bullying in nature. It may have been just like totally rude and inappropriate. Yet 
if we make how we feel about them, I think our self-awareness is decreasing when we become hyper aware of the other person to deflect from the, the thing about ourselves that we need to learn, but it's uncomfortable. We need to feel it, but we don't want to feel it because it's uncomfortable. So we just become fixated on them. We make them the scapegoat for how we feel. But I think it's an opportunity for increased self-awareness when we do what you just outlined, Rachel, when we sit there, we look at the comment, we take a breath, we start feeling our feelings and ask, what is my emotional charge about this reflecting to me about me? And if we can be the curious student of our own life in that moment and follow that question, what is this, my emotional charge reflecting to me about me? If we go down that path of self-discovery, I think we're, we're getting enriched by a teacher that's come into our lives for a moment. And I do think that's actually incredibly beneficial. And, and especially when we stay connected at an embodied feeling level rather than making this some kind of logical in our head investigation, I, I think we need to be in our feelings for it. So and with that said, Rachel, I know you have a massive online following. I'm blessed to have a lot of followers. And I think we could actually suffer death through self-awareness if we tried to do this with every single <laughs> negative comment that comes in. So I, you know, I personally make it Death practice. through self-awareness. <laughs> that would make yeah, it epic. Like, oh, drowning in consciousness right now. Yes, that would make it epic book title. So, but I mean, it's so, yeah, it's so damn true. And I also find the other end of that is if you're unable to sit with that discomfort and then do the work, do the self-discovery, sit with the discomfort, if we don't do that, it means that we're laying our happiness in the hand of the other person all the time. So that every single thing that triggers us becomes this sort of, you know, it shakes us all the time. And then we have to react to things all the time. And kind of, I find that when I don't do the work, it lingers with me and it sits with me for a really long time. And then suddenly I have more of that same energy come my way. Like, oh my God, why is everybody hating on me all of a sudden? <laughs> well, maybe there's something that I'm not sitting with right now. Or, you know, the universe is really trying to bang me over the head with something. Hey, there's a key here giving you something to work with. Do the damn work. Learn, grow. And I'm like, yeah. oh my God, Instagram. Everyone is just so stupid right now. I can't deal with them. <laughs> and, and by the way... It, the damn universe for telling us what we need to hear instead of what we want to hear. How dare it. Oh, and also, I find getting attached to the beautiful feedback, all the gratitude, all the praise. While I'm, I'm so grateful for all the gratitude and all the praise, and, and I'm guessing you're very similar where the vast majority of feedback, comments, messaging you get online is very positive in nature. Yet I think the danger of that is when we get attached to that, we're then automatically attached to the other side of that coin, where I think the degree that we get attached to the praise, that's the degree that we'll get attached to the criticism. And I think there, there's, of course, a balance where we, we want to acknowledge the praise and like, let that be a source of light and levity in our lives, but also realizing that we only have so much capacity for dealing with the shadow. You know, I, I 
can't have 100% of my bandwidth on that. So uh, I think some degree of attachment to the coin of feedback, which comes with the praise, comes with the credit criticism, is good. But uh, I, I don't want to lose myself to it. And, and I think something I found myself doing in the, the beginning, act like I'm a seasoned veteran, even though I'm just uh, stumbling along here trying to find my way. But in the beginning, when I would get it really attached to the praise, like it's so codependent, by the way, I was starting to make my sense of self out of who I thought others thought I was. And so I lost myself for a while. And, and hopefully I've, I found myself a little more and I can see some praise. I can see some criticism yet keep my sense of self and let who I am be dictated by me, not how other people see me, whether it's positive or negatively. And that is such a hard, hard thing to do. I mean, at least it is for me. I have a, a dear friend of mine, Jen Pasteloff. She has a, a course or a class on the theme of the one in the 100 and how it comes natural to us as human beings. That if we have 100 people say, oh, but you're lovely and you're beautiful, and then one person says, you suck, that we get stuck on that one negative. And I find that I do that in a very literal sense. Like I might have 500 comments on one Instagram post and I'll scroll through and it's so much positivity, but I'm kind of scanning because I know somewhere in there. And I do that when I'm not in a very conscious state. If I'm stressed or I'm on the go or I'm feeling overwhelmed, it's definitely not something that I do when I'm in my body and present and feeling calm. But then, you know, inevitably, I'll find that one little thing of negativity and my mind goes, aha, I knew it. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Affirming that belief. You aren't good enough. Look at that. So the question is, if 100 people say, oh, you're so beautiful and you're so perfect, does that make it so? And if 100 people say, oh, you suck, does that make it so? Neither of those things are true. And I think that's really where, at least for me, the practice of self-care I have a really hard time not getting caught in all of that outside drama. But if it's positive or negative, in the end, it's still just a lot of drama. So if I don't take care of myself, I find that I tend to get stuck in that in a much easier way. But do you have any any tips? I know there's going to be people listening right now. We're talking about this in a social media sense. And like, you know what I mean? And I know what you mean. But for someone who doesn't sit with millions of followers in social media, this is more of a metaphor for something very personal. Maybe someone who is in the middle of a negative exchange right now or having an issue with a family or a friend or in drama or someone has a person in their life that's challenging them. Do you have any actual action taking advice, something that we could do in this moment right now to allow us to move through that in a way that doesn't mean escaping or reacting? Yeah, you know, I I think hurt people try to hurt people. So when we have someone in our life, a spouse, friend, parent, uh, child, when we have someone in our life that's that's trying to hurt us, whether it's through like passive aggressive criticism or a little more blatant aggressive criticism, belittlement, that is a hurt person who's trying to hurt us. I think it's impossible for someone to try to hurt another person unless they themselves are hurt. So I have a practice that I'd love to invite people to try. It's certainly a bucking bronco to ride, easier said than done. But the practice is connect with how they feel, not their story. 
You know, if you can be present with someone, even though they're projecting stories about you onto you, they're projecting accusations onto you, they're probably even blaming you for how they feel, and they're probably not even being honest with how they really feel. If you can be present with them in spite of all those projections and connect with how they're really feeling inside and be connected with their pain, not take it on board, not be responsible for it, but connect with it and empathize with them. That is a very liberating practice because I think first off, what we're doing is supporting someone who we care about and they need support. And we're liberating ourselves from what they're projecting onto us. Most of the time, and I'm, I'm guilty of this more often than I want to admit, most of the time we spend 95% of our conscious focus interacting with their stories. And maybe at best 5% of the time acknowledging how they're actually feeling under their story. But if we flip that, I think we're, we're in a place of liberation, not being squashed by the overwhelm of an emotionally charged, illogical exchange. But it, so if we can have 95% of our focus on how they really feel, maybe 5%, yeah, we're hearing their story, but we're not engaging with her story. I think that's a real gift. And, and how that can actually look in practice is, you know, maybe someone, your spouse is yelling at you, you know, well, I'm always taking the trash out and I'm doing everything. And they're just getting angry at you, blaming you, telling you what you're not doing, what you are doing. If you can look at him or her and say, I bet you feel really upset right now. I bet you're feeling really overwhelmed and just see how they can connect with your acknowledgement, you know, and that's, that's liberation from their projection. It's Don Miguel Ruiz, Ruiz's, uh, one of his agreements, don't take things personally. We're, we're very much handing ownership of their experience back to them because we're not saying, I bet I'm making you feel overwhelmed. I bet I'm making you angry. I bet I'm making you feel afraid. No, let's not take it personally. Let's not own their stuff. Let's allow ourselves to be liberated while being giving them the greatest gift you could ever give a person, which is being present with them, even while they're upset, even while they're upset with you. So you say, yeah, I bet you're feeling overwhelmed right now. Is that true? So to me, that, that practice of acknowledge the feeling while not engaging with this story is one that um, I get a lot of mileage out of in my personal life. What an amazing practice and such an easy way to shift things around. You are listening to From the Heart, Conversations with Yoga Girl. Bra shopping is hard, especially when you live on a tiny island of Aruba. But even if you don't live in the Caribbean, I'm sure there are many ladies out there that can agree with me. Trying bra after bra and not loving them can be such a discouraging experience when you're out on a day of shopping. But right now, that experience and much, much more has been completely revolutionized by Third Love. Third Love has created the perfect bra. Right from the start, they help you identify your breast size and shape to find styles that fit your body with their Fit Finder quiz. 
You can take it right now, and in 60 seconds, your order can be placed and on its way to your house. It's actually fun and totally beats those awkward fitting room experiences. Third Love knows the perfect bra goes way beyond the shopping experience. That's why they are the industry leader offering an incredible 70 sizes with cups from A to H, including exclusive half cup sizes and bands up to 48. Did you know most old school brands only carry 15 sizes? No wonder we have such a hard time finding the perfect one. Third Love knows that 50% of all women fall in between standard cup sizes, so they took that information to heart. Each size is designed specifically for that perfect fit. On top of that, with expertly designed ultra soft fabrics, lightweight memory foam cups, straps that won't slip, and tagless labels to avoid itching, Third Love solves all of those pesky problems women experience when wearing a bra. Try a Third Love bra today and you might even forget you're wearing it. If you don't agree, returns and exchanges are always easy and free. Third Love knows there is a perfect bra out there for everyone. So right now they are offering my listeners 15% off of your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash heart right now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off of your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash heart for 15% off today. While you were talking, I was kind of playing over a scenario that I had a few days ago with my husband on this exact same thing, like the trash or the baby and, you know, things that accumulate and... However, whenever we get into that heated sort of thing, it's always because we're not hearing each other. So if I'm overwhelmed, then it's always my gut reaction. But I did that yesterday. Or don't you see that I did that already? And it becomes the story on top of the story on top of the story rather than, okay, I hear you. You're feeling tired. You're feeling stressed. Just having someone acknowledge that. Yeah, you're feeling things and it's valid. Let's sit with that. It just takes all the drama out of the moment immediately. And then there's nothing to fight about anymore because that's all we want, right? For the other person to just recognize us and to hear us and to be seen. What What a beautiful thing to take to heart. I find I've been doing that actually as a mother, but very intuitively. She's a toddler now. She's a year and a half. So she's all mm. over the place and she's figuring stuff out and she can get really frustrated, of course, over the simplest things. And she does this thing right now that if I tell her no for any reason, she just lays down flat on the ground and refuses to move. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes for a very interesting outing. Like we'll be at the grocery store or at a restaurant or anywhere. And like this morning, we were at the studio and she grabs a handful of rocks from the garden And she puts one in her mouth and I take the rock out and I'm like, honey, no, you know, we don't do that. Don't put rocks in your mouth. And I move her hand away and she's like, I can't believe you did that. (laughs) And the drama of me removing this little rock from her hand. It's like the world has ended. She cannot comprehend the pain and suffering of losing this rock. And oh my God. And then she just lies down flat on the ground. But then, you know, I haven't read a lot of parenting books. This has just been this intuitive thing from the start that whenever she has a big reaction to something, like someone would call it a tantrum. I don't like that word, but just a reaction to something new that I will just lie down on the ground next to her. And I'll just lie there and I'll talk and I'll say, oh, you know, I know this is hard. I know this is really hard. I know you're sad right now. Sometimes we fall or sometimes we can't do everything that we want. And it's hard. And I understand, you know, and I know what this feels like. And then we lie there and she's upset and we just lie there. And then all of a sudden the moment passes and then everything is just completely turned and she's running again and she's happy again. But it's so easy for me to do that with her to just sit there with her and whatever it is and not react. But maybe it is because she's a child and it's just easier. You know, there's no story attached to that. But when I fight with my husband, there's a lot of stories there. We've been together for 10 years. We're both adults, blah, blah, blah. I think it's easier with him for some reason to get lost in the story 
Yeah. I, you know, I, I could imagine, and, and I don't have kids right now, so I, I'm not going to speak from experience with kids and pretend like I know yet. I could imagine how that could be, you know, as you said, like relatively easier with your daughter and relatively tougher with your husband. There's your child. She's, she's the child. She doesn't have much covering herself up. There's probably not a lot of seductive stories around it. Whereas you look at your husband, you look at, or he looks at you. And of course me and my wife look at each other. And we have that one and a half year old toddler inside of us. We just have so much more covering it up. We, we have that emotionally needy, reactive inner child inside of us. But much like the, you know, the, you go to the redwoods and see a, a tree sliced and you can see like all the rings uh, for each year of the tree's life. But the innermost rings, like the tree's childhood, it's still there. It's just covered up by a lot of other stuff, but it's still there, it's still active. And I think it's the same thing with us. So as adults, we've got just a lot of other outer rings. And some of those outer rings are both the blessing and the curse of a very wise intellect that can rationalize anything, uh, you know, and also probably wounds that have been accumulated along the way that say, I need to be acknowledged and I won't let you acknowledge me because it's scared to be seen. So you mix that in with like, I need to be seen and you've got like a lot of a lot of seduction and trickery going on yet beautiful thing is when it's a a child child rather than an adult child you're probably just seeing mostly the purity of the innocence of how she's actually feeling in the moment and i imagine that's easier to connect with and that's why i I think you got to get your 10th degree black belt in brazilian jiu-jitsu of emotional communication to work with you know all of us need that to work with our spouse because there's a lot of egoic trickery that happens and and honestly, I I would love to sit here, Rachel, and say, like, I'm really noble enough that I don't do that. I just recognize it in my wife and, you know, I'll pray for her. But I think part of my ego trickery is seeing the tricks of others to trick myself into believing that I'm above that. Like, oh, yeah, I, I see you doing that. I'm I'm glad I don't do that. When in fact, that's tricking me to think that I'm above that so that I can probably actually keep myself below that. I think we as adults have so many like metaphor rings, just like the way the the trees have rings covering its childhood, the outer rings. I think we as adults have that. And, And some of our rings that cover the child inside are our seductive egos that are very logical, very rational, and also uh, our wounds that are unresolved. And some of our wounds basically say, I need you to acknowledge me, and I'm not going to let you acknowledge me because it's scary to be seen. So I, I think we do that. Yet when we look at just a child child, rather than you know, an adult child, I think the child child, it's more pure. It doesn't have the, the outer rings of life experience and, you know, dysfunction and mental faculties to cover up the innocence and purity of how the child's actually feeling. So that's why I, I'd imagine just delusionally imagining right now, that's 
maybe one of the reasons why you can have such a direct, like easier way of empathizing and connecting emotionally with your daughter compared to uh, maybe say your husband at times. Yeah. And I know there's also the flip side of that, of course, where it's just like, you know, you have a screaming toddler lying on the floor at the grocery store and it's like, oh God, just no. (laughs) But also, you know, if you're not present in those moments, it is easy to miss them. And I think that's when parenting can get really, really hard. And then it's just so hard in those moments. And, you know, she's my biggest spiritual teacher right now and probably forever. It is a really beautiful thing. But touching on that, so vulnerability, because that's something that's, you know, very present in children, which to me is the the beauty of kids and their ability to just be there in the moment. And, you know, like my daughter, she has all of her emotions. They're always right there all the time. There's no covering it up. There's no faking it. She's not trying to hide it or put up this big armor of, but I'm okay. This is who I am. You know, were you always able to touch on that place of vulnerability? Or is that something that has come through self-discovery or through spiritual introspection? Yeah, not even close to always being able to touch into vulnerability. And and honestly, Rachel, I, I, I think I struggle with it present day big time, which is at least a great step of improvement beyond being indifferent and complacent with it and not even struggling to move forward. So, you know, the, the way I was raised and at least through my experience of childhood, the, the messages I interpreted, some maybe spoken and others were just interpretation, were real men don't have feelings. I remember when I was five, we had lived with my grandparents for about a year and a half while my family's house was being built. So lived with my grandparents year and a half and you know, we got really close. We were already close, but we got really close. So it was the evening we were moving out. We're going to drive 20 minutes down the road to our new house, first night in our new house. So I went to hug my grandfather goodbye, and he wouldn't let me hug him. He said, real men shake hands, not hug. So there I was, five years old, and, I, and that, that message imprinted on me at, at, at a deep level not really a helpful way. I mean, looking back, it's like, well, that's not something I'd consciously choose. But that, that was kind of the ethos that I was raised in. It didn't feel safe to cry. It really didn't feel safe to be angry because some of the, the you know, people around me, dad, mom, they'd get angry at me for being angry, which taught me to be afraid of anger, which taught me not to feel anger. So I went through a lot of emotional disconnection as a kid because, like, heck, I want to feel safe. I don't want to feel discounted for being upset, for being afraid. So without knowing it, I became pretty numb inside. And I'll always remember the, the first class I took with a man, he's been just a powerful mentor, become a great friend guy named John McMullen runs an organization called Journeys of Wisdom. He's just an angel inside of a human body. So the first class I took with him, December 3rd, 2002, he, like, he just saw through my numb facade. 
of emotional disconnection where I'd present myself, I'm strong, I'm stable. And actually up to that point, it had been at least eight years since I cried. And I'm 23, I was 23 at the time. And I believed I was very strong emotionally because I hadn't cried in eight years. And anyway, John saw through my facade. He just intuitively picked up on something that needed to be said, something about when I was seven and parents splitting apart and my sister and I's relationship. I had no idea that was even, even an issue, but the tears came flooding out. And that was the first time I cried in at least eight years. And one of the lessons I took from that day was, I hadn't cried for eight years, not because I was strong, but because I was too weak to allow myself to cry. And then I, you know, my whole world started flipping upside down. Everything's a paradox where now I'm going through this disillusionment of the new reality is it takes a strong person to allow themselves to feel weak enough to actually cry, to actually be vulnerable. And, and there's still a lot of scar tissue in my psyche, old programming, old wounds, old pain that I'm, you know, that I'm needing to massage through to let myself be more okay with vulnerability. Um, you know, I think vulnerability is easy when it's in a, you know, a retreat setting. Everybody's sitting in a circle. Maybe we have candles lit. That's easy vulnerability. And it, that's a beneficial experience. But to me, the real challenge of vulnerability is feeling what I'm feeling in the moment that I'm feeling it. So when I, when I feel an upset with, with my wife, can I be honest with that? And sometimes the answer is no. The old programming and the fear takes over that says, no, it JP, if you are angry, you are unlovable. Don't be angry. Disconnect, conceal it. Put on a happy face. So sometimes that happens, So, which means I disconnect from my emotions, which I, means I'm disconnecting from me, which means I'm disconnecting from my wife. Yet uh, when I'm having a good day, I can be honest with her and, and not blame her, but do my best. I'm I feel anger right now. And here's what's coming up for me about that. Even though a part of me inside is just screaming in the phobia of JP, you will be unlovable to her if you're angry. So it's a very scary, dark forest, the dark forest of vulnerability uh, uh, that I'm working with. And and I'm guessing I'm not the only one. Uh, part of me wishes I was on the other side of it. And another part of me wonders, it, will I ever be on the other side of it? Or is vulnerability Is there another side of this? Thing? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, once we're good at vulnerability, maybe we just qualify for the next level of vulnerability. Maybe it's like, a, in a way, a video game that has infinite levels. And maybe that means that our capacity for growth and self-realization is actually unlimited. And maybe that's a beautiful thing, even though it can be a scary thing, because that means as we've essentially conquered great portions of the dark forest, that conquering qualifies us for the darker portions, the scarier portions of the dark forest. So 
Yeah, you know, when we master vulnerability 1.0, then we qualify for, okay, vulnerability 2.0. And and that's why, Rachel, I'd be curious your experience. You know, what I find in my life is when I think I've healed all the issues, then I find deeper issues within those issues and other issues that I was unaware of. And it almost is like, okay, here, we're peeling the onion and this is like an infinite onion. So, yeah, I'm curious your experience with that. The, the infinite onion. No, I, I had a very, very yeah. similar experience with that. Even the really big moments of emotional healing or, you know, moving through grief or loss or, or trauma at really heavy points in my life where I've had actual moments of something clicking. Like I could see a, a moment or a series or a string of moments that have led to a shift or an epiphany or some major shift in my life. And, and I've always in that moment been, oh my God, this is it. And then all of a sudden, you know, life goes on and I find myself on this whole other level of, you know, similar issues, not at the same degree, but definitely, definitely life continues to manifest similar things or, you know, completely new things or worse things or heavier things. I've had moments in my life where I felt, okay, I've had enough death now for a lifetime. So I feel like you know, life has given me everything in one go so that I can really sit with that and yeah. deal with that and heal from that and then take it out into the world and do something great with it. And then another person would die and I would have this big moment of just complete hopelessness again. Like, okay, this is it really again? I need more of this? And it's just taken enough of those moments in my life to realize that part of this is also that this is what my life is supposed to be. It's not just this one learning and then I'm enlightened and I'm done. But it's, you know, it's lifelong. And every time I tell myself, ah, I get it now, you know, that's the trickery, you know, that's the, what do you call it? The, the Maya, the veil. It's just, it's just mm. not real. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. What, what I heard you say is when you reach the illusion of the destination, you're reminded maybe abruptly, maybe subtly, yep, you're still on the journey. Keep going. Keep going. And also with that, I think, because I had very similar experiences when I was little. And uh, a really big one for me that I've been sort of pointing back to again and again was doing this while doing this inner healing work or personal development work is uh, I was nine years old and I was on vacation with my family and someone broke into our hotel room and stole something. I, I can't remember what it was. It was money or, you know, something was stolen. And my dad started asking me and my brother if we did it. Did we play with those things? Did we lose these things? Did we hide them somewhere? Did we take them? You know, I didn't do and he didn't do, but he was badgering me so hard asking if I had taken this thing that was stolen. And in the end, I started crying because I got really fearful. And his response was, oh, but now I know it's true. You did take mm -hmm. these things because you're crying. You only cry if you did something wrong. Wow. And that's something that I completely internalized and I didn't cry for a really long time because it was so ingrained in me that you only cry if you've done something wrong. So every time I felt sad, I would just kind of swallow that and make it into this big, dark, heavy thing. And I didn't cry properly for years after that. And then when I had that, you know, the first realization of, wait, that happened and that led me to this place. And, you know, I can cry rivers now. But for a while, I was really angry at him. You know, was that necessary? I was nine years old. Did I have to be raised in that way? It would have saved me so much trouble or pain or emotional separation if I'd just been raised in a more emotionally vulnerable way. 
did you did you have that experience with your grandfather where you felt some anger in terms of that coming your way or do you feel simply uh, grateful for it now well yeah yeah both actually i think you know there there's much less anger than there used to be yet i, I think there's still some there's still some residues and also very grateful you know to me they're both happening and in this moment at least i feel a lot more gratitude than i do anger and in my experience of like what am i grateful for based on how i experienced my grandfather's message i really don't want to blame him for it so i'm going to say it's my experience of his message when i was five i contracted from that And I contracted for a long time, many years. And luckily, I had teachers. I had people showing me a better way. So that mess, that contraction, I started to relax from it. I started to open from it and eventually go beyond it. And why I'm grateful for it is the contraction is what creates the strength. So you go to the gym and you're lifting weights or doing yoga and you know what you're doing you're contracting your muscles which is very necessary in order to make them stronger so i believe the the contraction i did has ultimately made me a much stronger person and and of course to receive the the offering of strength from that contraction and i think we all have our versions of the contraction we just have to ask ourselves like oh what is my version of that contraction. How did I contract? How did I pull back and cover myself up, cover my emotions up? How did I change myself to maybe meet expectations? In order to potentiate the strength from the contraction, we have to stop contracting. Much like a, a muscle that we, we never let relax, that contraction eventually makes us weaker, not stronger. So I think step one to Uh, potentiating the strength potential from a contraction is become aware where we're contracted and two is stop contracting and stop contracting means we're becoming vulnerable we're feeling we're feeling what the contraction was guarding us against and as we feel it and flow the emotions and maybe also have our mind and awareness happening of like okay well what's there to learn here while we're flowing our emotions and feeling it, you know, now we're expanding, we're getting stronger. So yeah, a lot of gratitude for, for my grandfather, my parents, um, uh, for, for what I would consider to be some wounding experiences. And have you also been able to see that reflection in them and the people in your life? Because that to me is just one of the most fascinating parts about this is that when I'm able to be really vulnerable with someone like my dad, for instance, who is not a vulnerable person, still isn't. And it's really hard to be vulnerable with him because I have those wounds from the past. You know, it's extra hard with him. I show up with more armor than with anyone else specifically toward him because of yeah. that. <laughs> so when I'm able and we have those moments of real vulnerability and they're rare, but they, they do show up. And I find that there's something almost otherworldly about what comes out of that. Have you had a, a similar experience yeah. with your parents or with your grandfather? Yeah, you know, not with my grandfather. He He's passed away. And 
you know, oh, if, God love them. I mean, still love them with all my heart. Yet with my, I would say with my mother, yes. And, and a, a bit with my dad. My dad's an interesting case. Like, what's that say about me? He's like, all right, let's not look in the mirror for just a second here. <laughs> Pretend this about him. Yet, you know, I, I have found both, I, I would say, a light and a shadow with being vulnerable with my dad. Uh, there, there was, um, what was it, four and a half years ago, I was moving across the U.S. from San Diego, San Diego to Charleston, South Carolina. It's like a three and a half day drive. My dad flew out and did the drive with me, which was kind of like, oh, it'd be easier without him. Yet there was a, I think, a smarter, wiser part of me that says, JP, say yes to his offer. Who knows how much more time you have left with your dad? So I said, yeah, dad, come on out. I'd love to have you. And he did. But going into the cross-country drive, I knew I need to say some things to my dad that I've been too scared to say. I've been, they've been in the confines of the family secrets. So I've got to have a voice here and communicate with my dad. So I shared some things with him about, you know, dad, as a kid, when you would do this and do that, I would pretend like everything was okay, yet it wasn't okay. I, I didn't feel good. I felt like I'd lose my dad. And, you know, when you and mom were separating and moving out, I acted like I was fine, but I was acting that way just to try to make you feel better and mom feel better. But the truth is I was really hurting inside. I just didn't know how to express it. And I was more concerned with making you think I was okay so that you could be happier. So, you know, really poured my heart out to my dad and, uh, after, you know, I really spoke my piece, my dad's words to me were, as he looked out the window, how far do you think those mountains are away from us? So what, I, what you know, what that felt like to me was empowerment because I voiced things I had been terrified to voice. And it also felt like rejection because I, I didn't feel heard. I didn't feel like my dad was engaging with me and meeting me at the open door of vulnerability that I was inviting him to. So that I, I don't regret that. I, I don't regret that conversation. Yet I also realize that vulnerability is a risk because, you know, I, I crawled out from the shell and exposed a very tender part of me. And there's a reason why we wear the shell because it, it makes us feel like we're protected from the risk. So when I crawled out from the shell, there was some hurt there, felt rejected. And it was also a great lesson because I learned like, okay, yeah, that actually didn't kill me. It's not the end of the world. Did it hurt? Yeah. And was it worth it? Was it worth me voicing my voice? And was it a hurt that I you know, didn't enjoy but could deal with? And the answer is yes. So, yeah, it, it, it that's an experience with my dad where where there's been both the light and the shadow that I've encountered in being actively vulnerable with them. I've uh, had almost an identical experience with my own dad. I I just I have to say, <laughs> uh, actually, a few of those experiences where I feel like, oh, I'm 
pouring my heart out. I'm, I'm digging in. I'm going to a place that just is really hard to touch on. There's emotion there and maybe I'm crying and, you know, all of it. And uh, his response is just like, oh, uh, look at that thing over there. Do you think they would have good lunch at that restaurant? Yeah, let's go over there. <laughs> and he would just kind of wander away and ignore everything I said. <laughs> and because I've done this with him a few times, my conclusion is that he's just unable. And, and I think he really wants to, but I think he just doesn't have the tools to, in those vulnerable moments, reach in and move out of his shell. It's just not accessible to him right now. Maybe it will never be. Yeah. But almost every time after we've had one of those moments and then I go home and I go home to my husband and I cry and I feel like I put myself out there and he doesn't love me and why can't we have this conversation and I'm trying to heal and blah, blah, blah. You know, same story always. Usually a few weeks following, something mm. will happen with him where all of a sudden I get a, a text or he shares a photo on Facebook that he found in some album. Or it's like a really small gesture that I know for him is really yeah. big. It might look small on the outside, but actually it's huge. Um, it could be a little message like, hey, I'm just thinking of you or I'm proud of you. And it took me a few tries before I figured out that that's the response from me going yeah. into my vulnerability those weeks ago. It just takes a long time for that to resonate with him and for me to get a response. But I do get a response. That, uh, man, I feel so good hearing that. That that helps me recognize that that's true for me. I, I think I that's been true. I just haven't recognized it because I can see my relationship with my dad has always it, it's never been better than it is now. Not perfect, and I've never been in a relationship that's perfect yet. You know, so I think what I'm recognizing is like, okay, that one vulnerable conversation in the car where I was met with rejection, it didn't have return on investment right then and there. It's kind of like in the immediate moment, it was kind of like rejection, but medium and long term in ways that almost seem unrelated to that conversation, yet I think they're connected our relationship has never been better. We have way more connection than we ever have before. So I, I love hearing you you speak about your experiences with your father and how the the change shows up in moments outside of the vulnerable moment. And and I also really appreciate how you mentioned with your dad, maybe my dad, maybe a lot of us have a family member or friend like this where they they might not be at the place of vulnerability where they know how to be vulnerable. They may not have the tools and, you know, they're on their journey. Maybe they're not supposed to right now, maybe not ever. And I think there's a level of acceptance in recognizing that and being okay with it. I think rejecting our fathers in this example, rejecting our fathers might come through uh, maybe a more noble looking facade that says, oh, I want my dad to be vulnerable, just like me. Well, that's rejecting the father that we have. And that's like, I don't think that's emotionally intimate and connective at all. I think it's actually pretty emotionally violent disconnection and rejection and by the way, that's probably a phase we all need to go through. It's kind of like we get angry at our parents for who they're not, for for the parents they never were to us. But when we recognize who they are as a person right now and learn to accept them, 
with all their gifts and all their flaws, I think there's exquisite intimacy in that. And I think it takes a lot of humbleness, too. Yeah, I don't know about you, Rachel. There's a delusional part of my inner child who functions as the rescuer. So as a kid and and to some degree to this day, this rescuer part of me lives under the spell that says, I'm supposed to not only rescue my parents, but make them into the strong, stable people that I've always wanted them to be. But that part of me gets <laughs> yeah, really I'm, I'm laughing now because I recognize this so much. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of rescuers out there. I don't think you and I are the only ones. Let, let's rescue the rescuers. <laughs> How can you use that? I mean, a rescuer, that's my term for it. So as a rescuer, you know, if we grew up feeling like, oh, I'm the, always the one to be the first to fix something or to fix someone or someone is going through a crisis, I'll be there to hold them up. I have that gut response for anything, anybody going through anything hard ever, including animals and mistreated children and any of all the pains in the whole world. And I have that from a wound when I was little, when I felt like I had to rescue my mother all the time. And this was sort of my, my life journey. Um, but it comes back to me and my relationships again and again and again. And what I find is that just so challenging is, oh, here's an opportunity to sit with another person's challenge and not make it your own. To not dive headfirst into someone else's emotion and pain and disappear into them. Like, will you, will you take it? Or can you be a support without losing yourself altogether? And I find that it's just, it's such a struggle for so many people because so many of us actually grew up becoming that. If we've had struggles in our past, if we've had parents that actually maybe needed rescuing at some point, and maybe we did rescue something or someone in our past and it was supposed to be that way. But then we get yeah. stuck with this identity of, oh, well, I, I did really well at this then. I'm going to make this my thing forever. And it's really hard to work on yourself because you're always going to have the distraction of everybody else needing rescuing first, right? So are you able to, I guess, distinguish between those things, rescuing or supporting someone because you're able to provide support and it's a healthy thing to do versus taking on the role of the rescuer and disappearing into wanting to help other people? And I, I feel like the newborn cult stumbling along. You know, sometimes I lose my balance on that. Sometimes I'm, sometimes I'm a little bit more sure-footed. Sometimes I don't know, am I falling over or am I standing, you know, appropriately stable in my center? But I, I think it's a step number one for all of us who are rescuers, which is only 100% of humanity. I think it's, it's, it's a way that our egos learn to get our emotional needs met. And, and there's other ways that we're not all rescuers all the time. It might not even be your primary dysfunction, though. I think a lot of us, it is primary. So I think step number one is having the wisdom to ask the question, what am I rescuing? And when am I being a genuine support? I think when we're when I, and I'll own this, when I'm trying to change how someone is feeling, that's the rescuer. And, and that it's helping under the guise of hurting. It's like, I, I remember, you know, when I was a kid, sometimes my mom would be in bed with anxiety. She'd be crying all day. Hell yeah, I was trying to rescue her. I was trying to change how she would feel so that I could feel better. Because seeing her crying in bed, I felt 
scared. I felt helpless. So I wanted to change how she was feeling so that I could avoid feeling the scared and helplessness. So I'd try to make mom laugh and rescue her in those ways. And let me do some chores here, mom. Let me take care of you. Let me uh, be the strong, stable one. Totally trying to change how she feels. And, And I noticed like with my wife present day, she might be going through stress. Something comes up in her business or she sees a negative comment on social media. And sometimes it gets to her and, and she'll be upset. And, and I, on my good days, I'll ask, all right, right now, am I trying to change how she feels? Am I trying to make her happy? Or am I actually being present with her and how she's feeling right now for, for as long as she needs? You know, so that eventually of her own accord, she can change how she feels as she emotionally digests her feelings rather than me using her to manipulate how she feels so that I can feel better about myself, which is totally using someone when they're in the time of need. That's what rescuing is. So am I being present with this person and how they're feeling now, holding space, if you will, in a connected way? Or am I trying to cheer them up? Am I trying to make them feel different? You know, honestly, uh, Rachel, sometimes it's both for me. And then, and sometimes I'll notice that, yeah, I asked the question, I'm rescuing right now. Let me, I'm glad I noticed I was doing that so that I can make a choice not to do it. And other times it's like, yeah, go me. I'm, I'm actually being a support right now. Um, yeah. Right, it, right. For me, it's it, never, it can't it's never, be both. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it also, you know, we can move between those areas all the time. I think it's a very natural thing. But for me, I think about this a lot because what I want to do when I get really down to the heart of what I want to do with my time, with my life, I want to make a positive change in the world somehow. I want to be of, of service. And I find that it's really hard to be of actual service if I'm in that role of being the, the emotional rescuer all the time. So I would love to end what has been a, a truly beautiful, enlightening conversation. I know so many people are going to listen to this again and again. For someone who's sitting at home or wherever you are listening to this from right now, how can they be of service today? Yeah, uh, here's what comes up. I'm going to come up with a little bit of a sharp edge. Feel your fucking feelings. Mm. Uh, You deserve it. You need it. I think Carl Jung said it best. Our feelings are the language of our soul. And I think sometimes our mind can play a trick on us and make the language of our soul, which is our feelings, appear to be the raw sewage of humanity. We can look at our feelings and think these are inconveniences. These are diminishing me. Unless I'm feeling happy all the time. But I, I, I think that's a trick we play in ourselves. I think our feelings, whether it's happiness, joy, sadness, guilt, grief, anger, shame, whatever we're feeling in the moment, I think that's the language of our soul. And it's a much wiser language than English. So let's not use our English-based thoughts to try to interpret it. But if we connect with the power of our soul by feeling our fucking feelings, we are we are going to be more in touch with our soul, which means we're going to be more on purpose 
in our lives within ourselves and therefore better service to the world around us. And I think that's true embodiment of Gandhi's words of be the change you wish to see in the world. Well, beingness is part of the be the change. So we've got to get connected to our soul or our hearts or whatever word we wish to call it. And I think our feelings are a very, very powerful electrical cord connecting us to our soul. And I I think our feelings always empower us, even though we might feel uncomfortable, pain, and even feel disempowered in the moment. I think we truly empower ourselves and the world around us, even through the silence of being connected to our own feelings. And by the way, that's not sexy, yet I think it's very powerful and important. We don't get any social media points for it. You don't get any increased social status. They're like, oh, wow, you've got 3 million likes on your connected to your feeling page. Yay. No, nobody (laughs) will see this. It's a thankless job. Hmm. Yet I, I think we all deserve to give ourselves the gift of plugging into our true power source, which is our feelings. (laughs) <laughs> I feel like I got I am smiling so big right now look at this don't even apologize for it you just made the title of this podcast <laughs> episode feel your fucking feelings with JP Sears there we go boom <laughs> I love it thank you so much for coming on the show I am so unbelievably grateful to have had you here everyone listening you can go to awaken with jp for everything jp live comedy shows youtube videos online coaching so much more thank you thank you thank you jp for sharing your whole heart thank you it's been an honor rachel thank you for connecting with me sister Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and a huge thanks to my guest, JP Sears. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of From the Heart Conversations with Yoga Girl. You can find all of them on yogagirl.com, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you normally get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review while you are there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And of course, thanks to my sponsors, Robin Hood, Four Sigmatic, and Third Love. Please support them the way they support this podcast. I'll see you next week.